You may remember the account in the Gospels in which the Sadducees come to Jesus and, and think they have a good argument against the resurrection of the dead. And they lay out a story about the man and the wife. The man dies, and, and as the law would say, the, his younger brother then is supposed to uh, take his wife, that man's wife to raise up uh, offspring, and, and he dies, and that happens all the way down to seven brothers. And so they say, well, obviously the resurrection doesn't really make a lot of sense because she was married to seven different people, and so whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And in Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30, Jesus answers them in this way. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I bring up that account because it's related to what I want to talk about in at least three ways this evening. One is it gives us an example and a sense of warning of the importance of making sure that our beliefs are formed by scripture rather than by plausible arguments, rather than by someone who comes along and happens to say, you know, what about this? And we become deceived. Secondly, because it's also a reminder to us that we need to think of all of Scripture and its good and necessary implications when we are determining what we should believe. And third, because it talks about creatures that I want to begin to talk about this evening, angels. You would take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. We've been working through a series in the beginning of Genesis, uh, in part to help us to, to form a biblical worldview, to, to try to have our thinking line up with Scripture's thinking. And at times, if we're going to do that, we have to engage in theological study of the Scripture that we have to not just look at the specific words and the specific meaning at that time, but also to compare Scripture with Scripture and to see what other passages of Scripture have to say in order to make sure that we're understanding particular passages rightly. And I think this is a good passage for us to think about because all of a sudden we have this serpent or this snake. As we read through Genesis 3, we don't get a lot of information about it. Here at the beginning, we, we do find out it's crafty. It also talks, which seems a little bit odd, because we don't usually think of snakes talking. Later on in the chapter, in, in verse 15, uh, when God ultimately curses the snake, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And now we seem to have this snake continuing on in some way. Even the woman's going to have offspring, and one day this offspring's going to come, yet this snake is still going to be there. And so both the snake and his offspring are involved, and yet the snake's still there. And that's because as we go through the rest of Scripture, it becomes very clear, this is not just a snake, this is actually Satan. Now, how can we know that? 
Well, I want to look at some passages of scripture that help us to see that is who this snake is. So first of all, go to 1 John 3. You're gonna be turning in your Bibles a lot, get your fingers nimble, hopefully they're warmed up now, being out of the cold. You can turn your Bibles to several different passages. We're gonna start in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. 1 John 3 and verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Now that language of the evil one is the kind of language of saying, in a sense, offspring. This is your source. This is where you came from. You came from the evil one. And that's the kind of language that we saw in 315. There's an offspring of the evil one, and there's going to be enmity between this offspring and the offspring of the woman. Go back up in verse 8 of chapter 3. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And so the devil has sinned from the very beginning. And what are, where are we in Genesis? We're at the beginning, at the beginning of creation. And certain people who practice sin are, again, of the devil. They, they are part of his offspring. We see something similar in John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8. And verse 44. John 8 and verse 44. Here Jesus says this to certain ones who are denying his word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so again, we have this language, you are of the devil. And from the very beginning, he's a murderer and a liar. And in fact, he is the father of all lies. And what do we find this, the snake doing in Genesis chapter three? Lying to Eve. And so here we're, we're seeing several indications that, that match up with the language we see in Genesis three. The snake has offspring. And that's what we see in the rest of scripture. This offspring is actually of the devil. He's the father of lies. But we also see in Romans 16, Paul explicitly pointing to this text. Go to Romans 16 and verse 20. Romans 16 and verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And what's the, the promise given in Genesis 3.15? That the, uh, the snake's head would be crushed. And yet here it's Satan is being crushed under the foot. And so that seems a pretty clear reference to that promise. And we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 12, and I think we really are left with no doubt this is who the snake is. Revelation 12 and verse 9. Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And down in verse 14, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. She could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away from the flood. And so here we have the serpent identified as Satan, the serpent of old. Language we'll look at later as well is the same language used in Revelation 20 and verse 2. And so you might have thought, Ben, I already knew this. My whole life I knew the snake was Satan. Why are we doing this? It's in part because the reason we know that is because in some ways we've looked at the rest of Scripture and and have an understanding that what's going on here is this was no ordinary snake. That in some way, ultimately, Satan is the one who is behind this snake. And yet, if we've been reading through Genesis 1 and 2, when we get to chapter 3, we're kind of left with the question, well, where did this snake and Satan come from? Who is this Satan? And from Scripture, we understand that Satan is an angel. Go, if you would, to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job 1 and verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And again, uh, look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And so the sons of God here is, is a reference to the angelic beings, and Satan's in their midst. He's part of them. So it's pretty clear he's considered one of these angels. I want to ask you to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 11 specifically talks about the fact that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And that's not because he's not an angel, it's because he's not an angel of light. So he disguises himself times as if he were an angel of light. And as well, we, we find in Revelation 12, 9, which we looked at earlier, his angels being described with Satan. And again, Matthew 25, there's a discussion of the devil and his angels. And so it seems pretty clear in scripture that Satan is an angelic being who is an adversary, which is what Satan means. It's an adversary to God. And yet we're still left, in a sense, with the question, where did he come from? When we go through the, the six days of creation in Genesis 1, nowhere is it explicitly mentioned, and on day two, he made Satan and the angels. And so, where did they come from? Well, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 3 and verse 1 we see this described, the serpent is more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so there is an emphasis here that this is part of God's creation. The serpent's not outside of God's creation. The serpent, the Satan here, and his angels are part of God's creation. And we see that reiterated in other places of Scripture. Go to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. We'll start in verse 2. 
Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. And praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heaven and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. Now what's included in that phrase, he commanded and they were created? All his angels. And so they are part of God's creation. God made angels. We see this again in Romans chapter 8. You would go there to Romans chapter 8. And verse 38. Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And so in this list, we have a series of created things, and part of them are angels. And so in Scripture, we see angels are created beings. Again, I want to have you turn there, but Colossians 1.16 points to this as well. It says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And specifically, the rulers and authorities, I think, are pointing to angelic creatures. They're part of the invisible things that God made. And so they're not separate from God. They're not equal to God. They're part of his creation. Then we're left with the question, well, when did he make them then? And to answer that question, I want to go initially to Exodus 20 and verse 11. Exodus 20 and verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And here I, I think we see the, the same idea that if we look at Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 2.1, it says the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And so when did he make angels? It seems our answer has to be sometime in those six days. That's when he made all things. And so in those six days, angels were made. It wasn't before then. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when in that six-day period were they made? And the best answer I think we can get is in Job chapter 38. So you would go to Job chapter 38. Job 38, beginning in verse 4. Here, God is in the midst of questioning Job and, and pointing out Job's inadequacy to question God. And he says this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, you may remember at the beginning in Job 1, we mentioned the sons of God are coming before God, and that's a reference to angels. 
And so here we have angels shouting for joy when? Back in verse 4, when God laid the foundation of the earth. And so it seems, as we're looking through Scripture, the best answer we can get is, most likely in that initial act of creation, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In connection with that, God made angelic beings, in part, so they would be able to observe his creative work and therefore give him praise. That they would sing together. That they would shout for joy. Now, this is an incidental question. Um, might be something that you've never thought of and you don't care about. But occasionally people wonder, do angels actually sing? We just went through our Christmas season and there's a lot of songs that talk about angels singing. And yet there's not a lot of clear references in scripture to that other than I think this one. I think this is a pretty clear reference that angels sing here. Now, I'm not going to say it's definitive. It seems pretty clear to me though, the morning stars and the sons of God here are parallel to each other, shouting for joy and singing together are also parallel to each other. And so I think what we have described here in Job is that as God is laying the foundation of the earth, as God then does his act of creation on the first six days of the, of the world, that the angelic creatures are observing this and giving praise and glory to God. Now, coming back to Satan, it seems pretty clear in chapter 3 that Satan is now working in opposition to God. So did God make Satan evil? And if God made angels on the first six days, what do we have to conclude about angels when they were made? When Genesis 1.31, God looks at all that he has made and what does he say? Behold, it's very good. And so Satan was made good. He was created good. And yet Satan, at some point in time, sinned. What was this sin? Let's go to 1 Timothy 3 to find out some information about the nature of his sin. 1 Timothy 3. First Timothy 3 and verse 6. In giving the requirements for someone to serve as an overseer in the church, Paul says this, he must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And so it seems that the condemnation of Satan came because he became conceited. Pride. You've probably heard that before. Right? That Satan's sin, in some ways, was manifested by pride. There's some debate about a couple of passages in the Old Testament that uh, may or may not talk about Satan. One is Isaiah 14, verses 1 to 20. The second is Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 19. The reason there's debate is because some descriptions seem to be talking maybe about a human king, the king of Babylon, the king of Tyre. 
Other descriptions seem to be talking about someone who's greater than a mere human king. Uh, my personal view, I'm, I'm inclined to think that they do begin to point beyond the human kings to Satan. The description in those passages uh, do talk about pride, about someone exalting themselves, certainly would fit in with the description we see here in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, as, as far as what Satan actually did, he is described already, we saw, as the father of lies. And what do we see him doing in Genesis 3? He's lying. And so at a minimum, we know he sinned by lying and seeking to deceive. Uh, it was motivated in some ways by conceit or pride. It seems as well that, that he is, because he's setting himself in opposition to God, he is wanting to place himself in place of God. And he's probably trying to get Adam and Eve on board with him. When did he actually fall? Well, again, it had to be after Genesis 131. At that point in time, God looked at the creation and said, it's good. The latest it could be is Genesis 3, in which the snake actually comes to Adam and Eve and opposes God and lies to them. Did it happen between those two? I, I'm inclined to think it probably did. It could be that he actually sinned when he tempted Adam and Eve. I think probably what happened is there was some type of rebellion that takes place in which the scriptures actually talk about in Revelation 12, uh, Satan taking a third of the angels with him. And so I think probably uh, sometime between the end of the six-day creation and Genesis 3 in which Satan tempts Adam and Eve, Satan rebels against God and takes demons with him. Now we might then try to wrestle with the question, if God made Satan good, how could Satan have rebelled against God? And in some ways, this parallels the question of if God made Adam and Eve good, how could they have rebelled against God? I think the answer is best understood by, by viewing, in some, in some ways, Satan and the angel's role as similar to Adam and Eve's. We find in Scripture that some angels are described as holy or elect. I'll just read a couple passages to you. Revelation 14, 10, talks about the presence of the holy angels. 1 Timothy 5, 21, Paul mentions God's chosen or elect angels. And so we have some angels that are holy or chosen and elect. Additionally, we have angels that are fallen now and are demons. Uh, we've mentioned already, uh, Matthew 25 talks about the devil and his angels. Revelation 12 has that same type of designation. And so some angels are now evil or fallen. They are demons. Other angels are good and holy. And I think the best way to understand what happened is when God made the angels, that there was a period of time in which they could choose to serve and follow God or they could choose to rebel against God. In similar ways, we'll see in the coming weeks, that's the same test that Adam and Eve had. And if they, after a period of time, 
chose to serve God, they would now be confirmed as good or holy. So they were made good, but there was a possibility for them to choose to do evil. And in that period of time, some angels chose to do evil, to disregard God, and to, to rebel against him. And at that point in time, they were now fixed in the rebellion against God. And those who chose to obey God are now fixed in their obedience to God. And so today, can good angels become bad angels? I don't think that's possible today. Certainly the reverse is also true. Fallen angels cannot choose to do what is now right and good. Because they have now been settled in their nature. I said there's some similarities between angels and Adam and Eve. A big difference is this. Adam and Eve were the only two people. Because God made humans as a race. Adam and Eve were set up as our representatives. And all other humans come from Adam and Eve. At the very beginning, I mentioned Jesus' statement to the, the Sadducees about the resurrection. And he says, in the resurrection, people will be like angels. They won't marry or be given in marriage. Because angels do not procreate. Angels don't give birth. The, the language that's typically used is that humans are a race. They all come from one person. Angels are a company. They stand each individually. And so there is no original sin for angels. Adam's sin affected all of us. Satan's sin only affected Satan. Every other angel, their, own, their sin only affected themselves. They individually chose either to follow God or not to follow God. So now, Satan is in opposition to God. And starting in chapter 3, working through the rest of Scripture, we find him in a conflict with God. He's now opposing God. He's, he's, he's in opposition to God's people. He's seeking to undermine God's plan. He's seeking ultimately to gain victory over God. And what's going to happen? Well, go, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we find out what will happen to Satan. Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan has, currently, he's involved in deceiving the nations. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the, the, the prince of the kingdom of this world. He is involved in deceiving the nations. And yet, after the tribulation period, he will be set up in the abyss. And for the millennial kingdom, for the thousand-year reign, he will not be able to deceive the nations. And yet, he's going to be released. And we find that described in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. 
And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What is Satan's future? His future is this. To be cast into the lake of fire along with his angels, the place that God prepared for them in which they will be punished for all eternity because of their rebellion against God. So I want to encourage us to think in in four ways in light of what we see Scripture telling us about Satan. The first is to know Satan is our enemy. He is our adversary. He is opposed to God and to his people, and we are called to do battle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the authorities and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And secondly, to know that Satan is powerful and he is cunning and deceptive. He's crafty. He deceives. He is the father of lies. So we need to be wary. We need not to believe the lies of Satan, but instead we need to do what what Jesus says in order for us not to err, in order for us not to be wrong or mistaken, to know the scriptures, to believe what God has said. And then third, to know that Satan is ultimately nothing compared to God. One of the, the truths that other religions, other worldviews have is that good and evil are equal and opposing forces. Uh, perhaps Silly way to think of this, but a common way in our culture today is in Star Wars. You have the good side of the force and you have the evil side of the force, and there's always balance between the two. And that's the way a lot of thought and of religious thought occurs. You have equal and opposing forces, good and evil. And in many views, you have two creators who are behind the world, a good creator and an evil creator. But in scripture, that is not what we see. There's one creator. He's a good creator. And one of his creatures thinks he can stand against God. And yet it's very clear, his creature can only do what God allows him to do. Look in Job, as Job, Job has to come and report before God. Satan has to come and report before God in the book of Job. And he can only do whatever God allows him to do. And when it comes time, God can shut up Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. And then when Satan brings up his greatest rebellion against the Lord, they will be immediately consumed by fire. Satan is no competition for our God. And then finally, for Satan and his demons, There is no hope. There is no redemption. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that humanity sinned against the Lord. And because of that sin, we became separated from God. And yet, for humans, God has offered us hope. 
God has offered us redemption. And so we have a reason to praise the Lord that even angels do not have. There's a hymn by John Newton. Says, is the, the, the hymn is the song angels cannot sing. Now let us join with hearts and tongues and emulate the angels' songs. Yea, sinners may address their king in songs that angels cannot sing. They praise the lamb who once was slain, but we can add a higher strain. Not only say he suffered thus, but that he suffered all for us. When angels by transgression fell, justice consigned them all to hell. But mercy formed a wondrous plan to save and honor fallen man. Jesus, who passed the angels by, assumed our flesh to bleed and die, and still he makes it his abode. As man, he fills the throne of God. Our next of kin, our brother now, is he to whom the angels bow. They join with us to praise his name, but we, the nearest interests claim. But ah, how faint our praises rise. Sure, it is the wonder of the skies that we, who share his richest love, so cold and unconcerned should prove. A glorious hour. It comes with speed when we from sin and darkness freed shall see the God who died for man and praise him more than angels can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is light and life. Thank you that your word gives us knowledge and insight. We pray that we would study your word well, that we would not be mistaken, but that we would know the scriptures and therefore be able to think rightly about this world that you have made and what you want us to know and what you want us to do. And Lord, we thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you that we can praise you in a way that The angels cannot praise you. And I pray that we would, as your redeemed people, sing of the Lamb who is slain. We pray this in his name. Amen.